Greetings again, everyone, on the final afternoon of what is called the last great day. The Feast of Tabernacles was over yesterday, of course. We don't think of it that way. We think of this day as a part of the feast. Actually, it is a separate day, in a sense, and though tacked on to or contiguous to or almost like a part of the festival, it has a completely separate meaning. I want to tell you a little personal story. It's a little bit embarrassing, but it's true. Several years ago, I made the national magazines, true magazine said that I had been arrested while found standing over the dead body of a moose in Alaska. And it said in the article, Garner Ted is at it again. I didn't know what at it meant. But as I read the article, I became almost livid because it was so absolutely untrue and so far-fetched. I would like, for the first time, I did last night, and that's what reminded me of it, we were just casually talking with some of the brethren here, we were invited over and we were sitting around and, and chatting after dinner, and I related how that had occurred. We went up to Alaska for a combined church meeting, and at the same time, for the first time ever in my life, I had a chance to go hunt moose. So we took that opportunity with a member of the church who was also a guide who was registered in Alaska, and we had flown out to King Salmon, and then we got aboard a little Cherokee 6, and it took about two or maybe three separate trips to get about six of us over there, just loaded in like so much baggage in the back of a little Cherokee 6. This was from early morning until about noon, and it was a very lowering, gray, drizzly, drab, rainy, overcast day, very poor visibility. I was sitting in the back seat, and there were tubes and tent stakes and duffel and bags and, and rifles and all kinds of cooking equipment and duffel all over the place, and I was in there with my knees up in my chest, and I could see just a little bit through this foggy little windshield straight down. Well, the aircraft was flying very low, only a few hundred feet over the bays and estuaries and rivers along, tracking along the ocean on the Alaska Peninsula. And finally he found a river that he recognized and flew up that river, and the peaks were all obscured by clouds, and found a gravel airstrip and landed on it, kind of a muddy, graveled strip up there. There must have been a World War II strip of some kind. And there was one other camp on the strip, and there was a little super cub parked there by one of these big outfitters that apparently had some of the Germans and the other people from Europe on some of these uh, very expensive and internationally advertised moose hunts. Well, we proceeded to unload our duffel, and he took off, and in about an hour he came back with another load, and here came some more of our people and more duffel, and he took off, and about an hour later came back with a final load. And all of this time, we're just staggering under mounds of equipment, and we're wandering down over here in the brush away from the airstrip, and we're staking out a camp. And we set up a great big cook tent and about four other tents, and I took a shovel, and we went down and found a seat, and we dug it out real deep, and in the water cleared away and the dirt settled and we had a place to dip fresh water out. I went scouting around. There was a beaver dam down below, but it was a lot further down to the dam to get water, so we dug out that seep. It was a lot closer. And we made up our sleeping bags and we put out all of our cooking utensils and all of our gear. Well, this took hours, so now it was probably about 3.30 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We've been working steadily since 11.30 or 12, unloading and setting up camp. Very drizzly and very gray and cold, and the peaks obscured partially by clouds and a lot of snow around at the upper elevations. So one of the men, whose name was Don, got out a tripod with a very powerful spotting scope, and he set it up outside one of the tents. 
And we walked over, and we each took turns looking in it. And we were panning around, and lo and behold, Don said, wait a minute, look at this. And about five miles over there, in a completely opposite direction from which we had flown in up that river, way over here against those mountains, was something shiny in the brush. And we looked, couldn't believe our eyes, it was the palmated antlers of a huge bull moose. A little further on, there was another bull moose. A little further on, another one. I think there were three to five, I forget how many, but several bulls and some cows visible feeding along over there, not five or six miles away from us, across those hummocks and tundra and through the brush and everything, and it was rolling and very rugged terrain. So we said, wow, what an opportunity. Now let me just go back to tell you a little bit about the law. The previous year in Alaska... They had the charter pilots with their huge rubber tires. They're about this wide and about this big that they put on super cubs. And, of course, they're an STOL aircraft, so they can fly around and land just on a shallow gravel bar. And they would take their hunters, and they would spot the animals from the air and land in the nearest place they could and then stalk overland. And it was a very effective way of killing a bull moose. Also, unfortunately, because the ungainly moose is pretty much the victim of modern technology, it was devastating the bull moose in Alaska at an alarming number, an alarming rate. So they changed the law, and in order to try to get across the intent or the spirit of the law, which is, one, let's slow down the slaughter of these animals. Let's just crop them in meaningful fashion, and let's give the moose a better chance. Let's make these hunters go after them on foot or on horseback and not be able to spot them from the air. So they wrote up the law that a hunter may not kill a moose in the same day that he flies in an airplane. And I guess I'd heard vaguely a rumor about some sort of a law like that, but it hadn't made much a dent in my mind because after the last 20-some years of dealing with and thinking about the spiritual intent of law and how to apply the spirit of God's law in your own life, I suppose the letter of that law, which was very clear to me, was uh, one thing. But the spiritual intent of the law was another. Now, maybe I felt a little sorry for myself, I have to admit, after these years that have gone by, because while I have hunted much of my life, every year, it seems, whether in California, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, Idaho, wherever I might have hunted, the deer season always starts at the crack of dawn, or a half hour before dawn, on the Sabbath. And so for 20-some years I had sat in camp and listen, crack, boom, 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 crack. You know, sounded like the Battle of the Bulge. And I was aware of the fact that while I'm sitting in camp, a half or 60% of all the deer that were going to be killed that year are being killed. And we're, uh, we're sitting here waiting it out, you know, until the second day. And by that time, the deer are going to be standing around with their hair straight up, you know, and, and, and frightened half out of their wits and running away to their secret habitat. And it'll be a lot harder to bird dog out of the brush. I have never hunted on the Sabbath. Faithfully, we always observed God's law and just took the, uh, the uh, abuse of listening to all of these other hunters out there killing all the animals. Well, when we got into camp, it was a Friday. And that sunset was the Sabbath. And then I only had two more days and I had to get right back to Pasadena. I had Sunday and Monday. And so... Here was a moose, and I'd heard this old thing way back, a bird in a hand's worth two in a bush, and I thought a moose in a brush is worth, you know, 
uh, two days of slogging around after these Germans over there and his professional pilot go over there and, and uh, spot this moose, which they already had. Come to find out that this big professional guide was in league with a game warden, and the game warden was his buddy, and he also had a super cub, and this guide was taking these German hunters up and spotting moose all the time and coming back and landing and then going out and tracking them down and shooting them. And also discovered a corpse or a body across a river where they had shot a big bull moose, and the only thing they had done to that animal, they had not even opened up the chest cavity. They had not even gutted or cleaned out the animal. They had simply chopped out the antlers and taken them away, and there was the bloated, stinking body of that moose that had been killed a few days earlier. That's the kind of hunters we were dealing with. So I said, Don, let's see if we can go over there and scout this animal out and get closer. So about three or four of the four of us, I think, took off. And I mean, this was the most classic stalk in the history of moose hunting. Spotted the animal probably five or six miles away, and we take off and up and down, and we came to a real steep escarpment, and we heard this rushing sound at the bottom. We went slipping and sliding to the bottom, and there was a river. And the river was probably about as wide as this building is long, but it was uniformly a heavy, boulder-like gravel bottom, and we could see it seemed to be shallow. It was icy runoff, melting snow. And there was no way to get across it. I was wearing big, heavy boots and hunting clothing and carrying about 10 pounds worth of rifle and all of that. But there was an old rusty cable lying there we could see people had used as a hand line to wade across that river when it was a little lower. I said, well, the river won't stop us. The guide and everybody else was going to stop right there and go back to camp. We can't get across this river. So don't embarrass anybody. We were all alone, just men. But we stripped right on down. And we took our boots and laced them around our necks, and we packed our socks in there and tied all of our stuff in with the sleeves of our parkas and put them around our neck and our rifle on top of that. And here we waded out into that icy current, me first. Got about halfway across, and there's a kind of a wake hitting me in the chest. One foot goes out like that, and you're hanging on to the cable and hanging on to your rifle, and you're wondering, am I going under? If I do, my gun is going to be ruined. But we made it without incident across the other side muddy, filthy, and, you know, you sit down in a patch of nettles, and then you get up, and you're absolutely blue. You can't even feel anything from your knees down, just like stumps or stubs or something you're walking on. So we tug back our muddy, wet, plastered socks and our long johns and our, you know, uh, all of our clothing and down the parka. And when you walk, you get warm, so even though you're soaked to the skin, you can, you can get warm again with all the wool on. Mile after mile we slogged. We'd come to a high place and try to catch the distant sight of that animal, and once in a while we did, and we could see a little bit of light reflecting off his palmated antlers. As we got closer and closer, we noticed that airplane had come overhead and was circling around that moose, and then went back and landed like a little old black gnat, and it landed over there on that strip. Finally got close enough. And I was gazing at that thing from less than 200 yards away across a ravine. He was on an opposite hillside in a lot of very thick, stunted oak brush. And I guess it was just too much. Now, I paid my freight. I paid my dues, you know, so I'm not apologizing now. I'm just illustrating a point for the message that I have this afternoon. I just took that 338 Magnum and gently put that moose out of his misery and uh, went over there and proceeded to clean out the animal and cape him out and carry those antlers back. 
Well, we got part way back with it. We were caping him out. We were actually in the process of uh, doing the cape and had finished up the major part of uh, gutting a moose, which is a lot of work. It takes two guys to lift up one leg. In case you're wondering, the animal weighed about 1,500 pounds. That was one huge animal, probably about seven feet at the shoulder, and I've still got his antlers, and I can't even reach far enough to touch the end of them. If I'd stand them here, the tops would be above my head, I imagine. A huge thing, for me anyway. Uh, so, about the time we were finishing up the chore, here came two airplanes around the corner. And they circled so low you could have thrown a rock at them. And on the back of one of them was a nice big gold shield that said, Alaska State Fish and Game Department. And I waved with my cap, hi, fellas, I like to fly too, you know. Oh, we slogged back. About halfway we had to stash everything and hurry up because we didn't want the Sabbath to catch us. We had to reford the river. I must have lost 10 or 11 pounds on that one trip alone. We got into camp right at dusk, and now it was the Sabbath day. Well, on that Sabbath, an airplane came into that strip, an official-looking guy in a uniform came down to camp and asked if any of us had been out of camp the previous day. And I said, yes, sir, several of us. Did you shoot a moose? Yes, sir, I certainly did. Oh, mercy, that's very bad. So anyway, he sat down and he asked for my driver's license, and I gave it to him, and he said, you're... Garner Ted Armstrong. Well, I've listened to your program all the time. I said, is that right? He said, yes. And he said, I don't have any recourse. He said, I really feel bad about this. The guy was really polite, real nice young man. He felt very bad about it. I felt bad that he felt bad. I, I, felt, I felt bad to make him feel so bad. He was so nice that, that he did let us, uh, we weren't supposed to get any of the meat, but he did let us go back over there. We made three separate trips, and in the next three days we actually watched, and all that Sabbath day we would get up and watch three Kodiak bears on that carcass over there. And the following Sunday, we had to leave everything lying where it was on a Sabbath. We went back over there and collected as much meat as we could, a whole group of us, about six of us, on pack boards carrying about 60 or 80 pounds of meat apiece. So we made several trips like that, fording that river every time. And of course, when I got to where we'd stashed the cape and the antlers, the antlers were okay, but a bear had eaten the soft material of the lips and the nose, and the cape was completely destroyed. So I wasn't able to get the cape. I got a later cape from another animal that a guy was able to ship me when he went hunting. So I matched that cape to the moose, and I have the moose head mounted. I had to take a trip into King Salmon and meet a judge. On the way in, I learned a little bit about this judge. He was a local judge who was living out of wedlock with an Indian woman. Her son, by another marriage, had been caught stealing a car a few days before, but the judge let him off. I heard a lot of other stories. The guy was apparently a drunkard. There were a lot of other things that the local people talked about. This judge, he was rather a notorious hanging judge kind of a guy. Now, the maximum allowable limit that the law provided was a fine of somewhere around, I think, $1,500. That's what he gave me. I explained the whole situation. The principle, the spirit of the law had certainly been obeyed. No one used an aircraft to spot the animal. I was a passenger, like baggage, in the back seat of an aircraft that couldn't even see out. We came from a different route, spent about four hours setting up a camp, saw an animal about five miles away after a, lo a long, back-breaking stalk, got within range, shot the animal, and so on. Nothing could have been more a classic hunt. But he also had heard the radio broadcast. And unfortunately, he was of a different religious persuasion than the young guy who wrote up the ticket. So I had to call my wife the next couple of days when we were on our way out and ask her to uh, 
What did you do? Forward me the wire of the money? Or it was something to do with depositing a check or something. Anyway, I had to, to bail out. And, of course, I paid my fine. So the law was satisfied. And I learned a lesson. And I felt very sad. It really put a damper on that particular trip. But nevertheless, it was something that made me realize the vast difference between the letter and the spirit of the law and the vast difference between a judge who is really concerned about the spirit of the law is concerned about motive, wants to know what was your attitude, what was your heart, what did you think, what were you trying to do, were you trying to break a law, were you trying to circumvent a law, were you trying to deliberately slaughter this animal illegally, and it taught me quite a lesson. Today, this last great day, is the day we all know, I could turn to Revelation 20th chapter, and I will a little later on perhaps just to refer to in passing of the great white throne judgment. Now, I'm being judged by a judge of far greater knowledge and wisdom and insight, a far greater piercing insight into people's minds and hearts and attitudes every day than that judge up in Alaska. And when there are mitigating circumstances, like, say, 24 years of never hunting on the Sabbath, like this being Friday, and you see a moose over there, and it was a back-breaking task to go get the thing, and you didn't use the aircraft in spotting it, that they just might, a real, righteous, and a wise, and a merciful judge, take that into consideration and say, nevertheless, you did break the law, so I am going to have to tell you that you will have to pay a fine. But instead of the absolute maximum that the law allowed, Maybe ease it off just a little. Let's turn to Isaiah, the first chapter, in verse 10. Now, this is not to vindicate me. I was guilty. I was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. It was an impulse. I had no business shooting that animal, just because for the first and the only time in my life I was near a big bull moose, and because of the Sabbath and losing the day hunting and all of that. Fine, that was my excuse. That's what got into my head. I used that reasoning. It was wrong reasoning. I should have strictly obeyed even the letter of that law. And, of course, that judge made me wish I had. And every time I look at those antlers, I still wish I had. I'm glad I got them, but they cost me too much money. So this is by no means levied at that particular judge. Chapter 1 of Isaiah, verse 10. Hear the word of the Eternal, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me? I was commenting to my wife, and I've said this recently, I think I said it to our group in the seminar, and I've said it in sermons recently, that there are many ways by which many of us attempt to get more righteous than the other. And one level of righteousness is not sufficient unto us. We want to go an extra mile. So we have people saying, no, I'm going to follow the farmer's almanac, and by lunar observations, I'm going to keep an annual holy day on a different day than you're keeping it, because that makes me more righteous than you are. And I was reminding these gentlemen the other day, wait just a minute. From the time of my earliest boyhood recollection, my father insisted that Pentecost was on a Monday. The reasoning was, and I won't go into it in great detail, it would take too much time, that the English word from must always be rendered exclusively, meaning a way out of. You've heard it for years, you in the church. And that if you begin to count from the morrow after the Sabbath, you start counting with a Monday, a way out of a Sunday. Is that true? The answer is no. 
It's true only in one usage of that very broadly applicable word in the English language. From head to toe is inclusive. From wall to wall is inclusive. From time to time is inclusive. From here to there, from the corner to the corner, from the lawn to the, uh, the corner of the lawn, whatever. That's inclusive. From one to ten is inclusive. It's all the digits in between one and ten. But from today till tomorrow is exclusive. But mimaharat in the Hebrew language is a different term entirely, and it not only tells you how to count from or where to count from or beginning with, but it tells you where to count to, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. And when you discover the root word for Sabbath is the same word as in the fourth commandment, you can't make it weeks, meaning any Tuesday to Tuesday. Do you know that the word week is a divine unit of time? It is not a man's invention. There is no such thing as Monday afternoon at 10 o'clock to Monday afternoon at 10 o'clock being a week, because a week is from Sabbath to Sabbath, and the origin of the word week and the origin of the word Sabbath are practically identical, from Sabbath to Sabbath. That's why the Feast of Sabbaths is also called the Feast of Weeks. Because, you see, the only day of God's weekly cycle that was given a name is the Sabbath day, and all the rest were numbered. The Sabbath only was dignified by a name, and that is the weekly cycle. Now, inadvertently, even though we didn't know we were doing it, for many, many years we would come together, and because we thought Pentecost was on a Monday, we'd come together on a Friday, and we'd have a weekly Sabbath service. Now, since we're all there anyway, whether it was the mountains of Colorado or Big Sandy or Pasadena, well, why don't we just have another preaching service on Sunday? So we did. And then we'll say and we'll observe Pentecost, which we weren't doing, on a Monday. And God blessed us. Through all those years, we grew we were blessed enormously, great things were accomplished, and God overlooked the mistake of man, and we were blessed in spite of it. No one can say that is not true, because the history is there to look at and to appraise and assess. Remember the great festival of Josiah? Remember some of the great revolutionary activities of a righteous king who would discover in the rubble of the temple the book of the law and say, why, we haven't been keeping God's annual holy days. And there was a great Passover kept, the like of which had not been kept since the day of King David, and they enjoyed it and they rejoiced in it so much they said, let us keep eight other days with joy and rejoicing, and they did, and God blessed them in it, and those weren't holy days at all. But they kept them as if they were holy. Because to them, they were sanctified in their hearts to God, and God blessed them in so doing. So, would we have been more righteous during all of those years to have known that that Sunday on which we were having a service anyway was actually Pentecost? Would God have blessed us more? I really can't give you the answer to that. I don't know. I really don't know the answer. But I do know that there is no way we can out-righteous God. Many years ago, there was a gentleman who wanted to become very righteous on the Passover. And so he decided to slaughter a lamb. And all the brethren would gather around, and they would slit the throat of the little animal. They would watch it kick and hear the rasping sound of the ruptured uh, trachea and the blood spurting out onto the ground. And the little children would watch. And they would roast the flesh and have a nice pot roast out there, 
This little lamb was slain. That was very exciting, I should think, very fulfilling, very rewarding, very spiritual for people who wanted to just go God one better. Now, I see in my Bible over and over again, away with your sacrifices. There are not enough bullocks in Bashan to burn to me. In the beginning, he said, I spake not to your fathers in the day that I led them by the hand out of the land of Egypt concerning sacrifices, but this one thing I said, obey my voice, and I will be your God and you will be my people. That's all God wanted was humility. He wanted obedience. He wanted a humble person who knew how small he was and how great God was. He wanted the attitude of Job. And Job said, Now mine eye seeth thee, therefore I repent in sackcloth and ashes, and I abhor myself. God wants a broken and a contrite heart, brethren. He doesn't care about ritual. He doesn't care about meticulous ritualism. The Pharisee who said, I fast twice in the week, felt righteous. And if you fast twice in a week, you can feel righteous. But it wasn't necessary. The publican who said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, went away to his house justified more than the Pharisee who tithed of all that he possessed and fasted twice in a week. God says, verse 11, To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices unto me, says the Eternal? I am full of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed beasts, and I delight not in the blood of bullocks or of lambs or of he-goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this at your hand to tread my courts? Bring no more vain oblations, the washings of brazen vessels and pots and pans and so on. Incense is an abomination unto me. Can you imagine that? Yet there are churches that still have incense. Light a candle for me, will you? Oh, yes, I'll be sure to light several candles for you. Or burn some incense. And there are even new ones now, these oriental gurus that are getting followings of young people who will go and do nothing but uh, serve an altar and burn some evil-smelling incense from some foreign country all day long. God says it doesn't, uh, it's probably just a stench in his nostrils. It doesn't do a thing for him. The new moons and Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot away with it. Is it iniquity, even a solemn meeting? Why? Anything wrong with Sabbaths? No, but there was a lot wrong with their attitude. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates, they're a trouble unto me. I am weary to bear them. And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. I see people in some of these televised evangelistic campaigns, and they're like this. And the guy up there in the you know, behind the altar doing this. I don't know what that does. What are you doing? When you're looking for a gift, you want it to rain or something like that? That doesn't do anything. Clammy palms doesn't do anything to God. You stand on one leg doesn't help God at all. Wiggle your ears doesn't help God. Close one eye doesn't help God at all. Uh, God isn't interested in human body English. When you spread forth your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, our dear Heavenly Father, do thank thee this day that thou hast been very gracious to us. Amen. Oh, they, you don't even change the cadence. They're just speaking away while well, they're having an announcement today. And by the way, would you bow your head? Our dear Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee. And I've heard this on radio and on television. You can't tell when they've quit preaching and gone to praying. And it's hardly an interruption between the two. You make many prayers I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. Now, here it gets down to the crux of the matter. Wash you, make you clean, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes, cease to do evil. Now, what does he say on the opposing factor here? The opposite of doing evil is verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead 
for the widow. Interesting language that we ought to seek judgment, that we ought to judge the cause of a poor, afflicted, hungry, cold, perhaps de deprived person who is in poverty and doesn't even have a place to live, a place to stay. Now, if you have judged the cause of your own brother and sister, the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow, during this festival of tabernacles, you have discerned their need and you've tried to help them wisely and correctly. We don't want people misusing or abusing God's mercy and generosity by coming along and hitting you up for this and that and the other thing. It should be done wisely and correctly. He says in verse 18, Come now and let us reason together, says the Eternal. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you be willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Eternal has spoken it. And that is an indictment against the United States of America. And of course, that's exactly what our peoples are going to suffer. In Jeremiah, the fifth chapter, beginning in the first verse, just a few verses of this chapter of Jeremiah. Run you to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, again, as I've said in Ezekiel and here in Jeremiah, and in Christ's example in Matthew 23. Jerusalem is symbolic of all of the people of God and primarily the peoples of Jacob or of Israel. And see now and know, let's apply this to Cincinnati and to the Bay Area and to the cities up in Canada or Los Angeles or Dallas-Fort Worth. You run to and fro those streets and you see and know and seek in the broad places thereof if you can find a man, if there be any that executes judgment and that seeks the truth and I will pardon it, meaning I'll pardon that city. If you can find one man that really wants judgment and that seeks the truth. And though they say the eternal lives, surely they swear falsely. O eternal, are not your eyes upon the truth? You have stricken them, but they haven't grieved. You have consumed them, but they've refused to receive correction. They've made their faces harder than a rock. They've refused to return, meaning to repent. In verse 19, it shall come to pass when you shall say, Wherefore does the eternal our God do all of these things unto us? Then shall you answer them, Like as you have forsaken me, and serve strange gods in your land, so shall you serve strangers in a land that is not yours. Declare this in the house of Jacob, that's a part of our message, and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people, and without sense, without heart, as it says in the margin, without understanding, which have eyes and see not and which have ears and hear not. Fear ye not me, saith the Eternal. Will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sea for the bound, or the sand for the bound of the sea, by a perpetual decree that it cannot pass it? And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. But this people hath a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. Neither say they in their heart, let us now fear the eternal our God. And notice continually, as I mentioned in my other sermon about the book of Job, about Elihu, and then how God himself, stirred to answer Job, began to parade before Job all of the great creatures of nature and of snow and rain and the weather patterns and the seasons. Our God that giveth rain, both the former and the latter, in his season, he reserves unto us the appointed weeks of the harvest. Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. For among my people are found wicked men. I can apply that to the church of God today. They lay wait 
as he that setteth snares. They set a trap. They catch men. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. They are waxen fat. They shine the way you would rub a cow's uh, hair or coat, if you'd call it that, after you've fed it with a lot of oats in a, in a state fair or something, that, that coat will just glisten, and a, a horse's hide will, and so on. They shine. Yea, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They just look over them. They ignore them. They, they just overpass them or pass over them. They what? They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper. And the right of the needy, they do not judge. What kind of judgment is this? Shall I not visit for these things as the eternal? Shall not my soul be avenged on a nation such as this? A wonderful, not meaning wonderful the way we look at it, but a, a fabulously marvelous, uh, unbelievable thing, and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people, and I apply this to the church of God today, because it's happening right now. People are being ruled with force and cruelty in an organization, and prophets are prophesying falsely, and the priests or the priestly caste, the ordained ministers, are bearing rule by their means, and the people just sit there. My people love to have it so. And what will you do when it's all over? What will you do in the end of it all? The law that God gave ancient Israel, we like to think of as a harsh, stern, horrible law. But you know, Israel had no jails. It had cities of refuge, but it had no jails. There was no crime all the way to the many crimes of which there were many, including false witness, for which you could be stoned to death. But there were no crimes for which there were incarceration of a certain duration of time, the forfeiture of your freedom, the forfeiture of years of your life, was not built into God's plan. What kind of judgment is going to be passed out upon people in the millennium and even beyond that? Believe it or not, among carnal human beings, the kind of judgment that God is going to pass out depends entirely upon the spirit and the attitude of the culprit when he is caught. There will be mercy. There will be forgiveness, but there will only be forgiveness if they repent. Some of the most famous prayers of all the world were never answered. Which prayer was it? Just think for a minute. I want to ask you. Someone tell me out of the audience. Which is the greatest prayer of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that was not answered of God? There were actually two. You're going to think of the one before you think of the other, maybe. You know which one it was? Anybody? Yes. The one, of course, that, uh, that is the most important and the most famous is that he prayed that this cup, meaning this terrible crucifixion, be taken from him, and God did not answer that. He answered by allowing him to go ahead. But there's another one. Yes. Thank you. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. God didn't answer that prayer, brethren, and he will not forgive them until they repent. And when they are resurrected... And then they see what they did and the full impact of what they did. Those high priests that chanted and stirred up the people to say, crucify him. And they get right down on their hands and knees and beg God's forgiveness and repent. Then that prayer will be answered. But it was not automatic. In other words, the instant Jesus said that, God didn't say, fine, I just forgave them. They're guiltless. 
They hadn't even finished putting him to death yet. No. It was good for Jesus to pray that prayer. It's good for you to pray that prayer. Father, forgive my enemies. They don't know what they're doing to me, but he's not going to answer it until they repent. He won't forgive you till you repent. There isn't blanket forgiveness. There is forgiveness upon repentance. There's action-reaction. You repent, he forgives. You don't repent, you don't ask for repentance or for forgiveness or remission of sins, he doesn't. So if you have a young thug in the millennium, a human physical being, who is just adamant and he is a... You can even see where it says that a, a child that rebukes and rebels against his own parent will be taken out and stoned to death. You can see where a person is going to try to arrogate to himself the ministry or the priesthood and the kingdom of God, and it says his parents that begat him will thrust him through in the kingdom of God. Now, that is judgment. But I don't think it's going to happen more than once. It may not even happen once. How many murders have we got in this United States of America? How many do you think we would have if every person who murdered was murdered in exactly the same fashion? He kicks a crippled lady on a wheelchair down two flights of stairs, strap him in a wheelchair, and just tip him over and let him go. God is going to do that. It says, smiting for smiting, burning for burning, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, arm for arm, leg for leg, life for life, says the Eternal, and Moses' face shone. Do you want to tell me that was an unrighteous law? I won't venture to say that. Moses' face shone. He said, never has there been a people that was given so great a law as the judgments of God because it kept Israel under a righteous king that would administer those laws virtually crime-free. And there were no jails. And therefore, there was not a heavy burden of taxation upon the entirety of the populace to keep those people being given three meals a day and a place to sleep and license plates to make and television to watch and recreation and a trade to learn for 20 or 30 years so that you, the innocent and taxpayers, have this horrible burden to keep those guys locked up in jail. When they should repent, they should pay the penalty and then become a useful citizen in society once again. Well, let's notice going on in this chapter of the fifth chapter of the book of Jeremiah. They do not judge the cause of the fatherless, yet they prosper and have the right, the right of the needy. They don't judge. Verse 29, shall I not visit for these things as the eternal? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation as this? And we read that part, that the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests bear rule by their means. Let's turn to 1 Kings, the second chapter, and notice David's charge to young Solomon, who was about to take over the throne. He said, beginning in verse 3, keep the charge. He had said, I go the way of all flesh, Solomon, I'm about to die. And so you keep the charge of the eternal your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes and his commandments and his judgments and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and whithersoever you turn yourself that the Eternal may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If your children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. David died. Solomon was made king. He began to make an alliance with Pharaoh. And in chapter 3 and verse 2, he failed to do away with people sacrificing in the high places. Now, notice a little bit about the way God worked with some of those men and some of the things he was willing to overlook. You're dealing with an Old Testament situation, if you want to call it that, of a law of the letter, 
of people of carnal minds, but people with whom the one that became our Savior, Jesus Christ, worked. He worked with them by the power of his Spirit. They weren't begotten of God's Spirit. They had no access to the Father, but they had access, as David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. And that was the Spirit of Christ which was with them, but did not beget them as a child of God. And so here he was, allowing people to sacrifice in the high places because there was no house, no temple built under the name of the Eternal until those days. And Solomon loved the Eternal. Walking in the statutes of David his father only, he sacrificed and burnt incense in high places. Now your mind, and just think about this for a minute if you would please, a lot of so-called Christians reason, oh, well, if he did that, then that was it. I mean, that one thing that Solomon did, he was the worst man alive. Why, if he allowed those people to sacrifice, he should have been impeached as king and probably taken out and impaled or burnt. And now, O eternal my God, you have made thy servant king instead of David my father. And I am but a little child. I don't know how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which you have chosen, a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad. For who is able to judge this so great a people? And that speech pleased the Eternal, the Lord, that Solomon had asked this thing. And God said, Because you have asked this thing, and have not asked for yourself long life, as one king did, neither have you asked riches for yourself, as most would probably nor have asked the life of your enemies, which would be tempting, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern judgment. Behold, I have done according to your word. Lo, I have given thee, look at this, this is a miracle from God. He didn't have it before. I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart. The Holy Spirit of God is able to work with the human mind in such a way that he is able to give you a breadth and a depth and a scope of understanding, of seeing into and through human nature, of understanding motives that people don't understand in themselves. He gave that wisdom to Solomon. Yet Solomon, when he was old, turned and went after his wives and their false idols and lost a lot of the earlier truth that he had. So that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And you read the wisdom of some of the Proverbs and the book of Ecclesiastes and some of the deeds of Solomon, and you have to agree with that statement of your Creator. There was none like him. And I have also given thee that which you have not asked, both riches and honor. How about that? He didn't ask for it, and just as Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. But it's a matter of your priority. And Solomon's priority was judgment and wisdom and discretion in order to serve and to help the people. In order to sort out the tangled messes that people get themselves into, the interpersonal human relationships, the antagonisms, the strife that they get into in businesses and families and between partners and trying to sort it all out and do it wisely and justly. And so he said, I have given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee in all thy days. And if you will walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, as your father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. So he said he would give everything that Solomon hadn't even asked for. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And he came to Jerusalem and stood before the Ark of the Covenant of the Eternal, and offered up burnt offerings, and offered 
peace offerings and made a feast to all of his servants. Somehow God got through to him that he shouldn't have been there in Gibeon at the high place. He went back to Jerusalem and he offered a peace offering at the tabernacle of God. So God revealed some wisdom right away. And one of the first things Solomon did was to say, Hey, I shouldn't have been at Gibeon. I should have been down there at God's tabernacle. So he went down there and it came to pass. And here's one of the greatest examples of wisdom, and you've read it before, but let's go over it quickly in verse 16. There came these two women that were whores, harlots, under the king, who stood before him. And one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house, and I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that this woman was also delivered, and we were together. There was no stranger with us in the house, just us alone. This woman's child died in the night because she laid on top of it and smothered it. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thine handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom, and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I arose in the morning to give my child suck, behold, it was dead. When I had considered it in the morning, behold, it was not my son, which I did bear. And you tell me of a mother ever in the history of the world that gave birth to a baby that the next morning, three weeks later, you know, at a three weeks of age or whatever, wouldn't know, or this is three days, isn't it, wouldn't know her baby, wouldn't recognize it? Well, of course she would. The other woman said, Nay, but the living is my son, and the dead is thy son. And this said, No, but the dead is thy son, and the living is my son. Thus they, thus they spake before the king, both of them saying, No, 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 it's my baby. Then said the king, The one saith, This is my son that lives, and thy son is the dead. And the other says, No, but thy son is the dead, and my son is the living. Obviously, both of them can't be right. And the king said, Bring me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to the one, and half to the other. Then spake the woman, the woman whose the living child was unto the king, for her bowels yearned upon her son. And she said, O my lord, give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. But the other said, Let it be neither mine nor thine, but divide it. And the king answered and said, Give her the living child, and in no wise slay it. She is the mother thereof. Beautiful example of wisdom, of knowledge, of understanding. Beautiful example of the use of human nature to allow a person to trap himself and thus to show his own guilt. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had judged, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to do judgment. Now, if I called your name and I said, all right, it's your judgment day, and you didn't know it, but you had had a wiretap on you for the last five years. And I had here a big black briefcase, and we had a great big full vial of sodium pentothal, and we had a, a big polygraph machine with an operator here with the earphones and the charts and everything, and it's your judgment day, and we're going to take a deposition, and we're going to ask you about all you did in the last five years. A lot of us would be about like this, you know, and on our way out underneath the chairs, and we'd wonder, oh no, how, how do I ever get out of this? Well, it says here, the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. We are now, brethren, being judged on a day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, and season-to-season basis. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them be that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Wherefore, let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls, Greek suke, meaning their lives or beings, to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. There has to be judgment and discernment in the church. 
How do you want to be judged? We're familiar with Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. Actually, the word should be condemn not, that you be not condemned. How would you like to be judged? When I went before that judge in Alaska, I'll tell you how I would have liked to have been judged. Well, Garner Ted, I've heard your story, and I sympathize with you. I think that's a marvelous example that you have never broken your God's law by hunting on the Sabbath day, but always refraining from hunting and passing up the very best hunting of the year. And because you meant well, and because you were trying to obey the Spirit, but you did break the letter, I'm going to have to confiscate that animal, and I'm going to take the meat and give it to an orphanage over here, and I'm going to have to slap you with a small fine. It's going to be about $25 and a warning, and then we'll just say no more about it. Now, I wish I could have met a judge like that, because then it never would have made the newspapers, and I wouldn't be up here telling you about it. And it would have been just quietly swept under the rug, and I wouldn't have that in my background. It's been nice to meet a judge like that. But you don't meet judges like that very often in this world. Now, what kind of a judge is it you are meeting every day who looks down into your life and your heart as David began to pray and said, You know me thoroughly. Forgive me of my sins. Let's notice in the church the way the Apostle Paul had to exercise judgment, going to 1 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, and beginning in verse 1. Here was a case where a man had to be put out of the church for a terrible sin. Aren't we thankful? And isn't that man thankful? Someday you're going to meet him, and you'll never know it. I predict you're going to meet the man who lived openly in incest in the Corinthian church, and you're never going to know it, because God's word never put down his name. And he's been forgiven, and therefore God has forgotten it. And if God won't remember it, he's not going to let you remember it. And that man will be born of God and in the kingdom of God, and he won't ever remember it. So here is a sin that is truly buried for all time. Terrible sin, but buried and forgotten. And now he goes on, and he says, Bear any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust? Well, I can show you some people who dare. They take that dare, not me, and not before the saints. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we will judge angels? Now, that's a mystery to me. I know I tend to put all the righteous angels over here in a righteous area and all the evil demonic beings over here in a completely evil area, and I tend to think that the evil ones that followed Satan and his rebellion are demons and they're going to be cast into outer darkness for all eternity, and that's already decided, and that the righteous ones are much more righteous than we can get in this flesh, and therefore they're going to inherit eternity as lesser beings but as angels, and what is there to judge? I don't know. I really don't understand. But apparently... Angels are capable of doing an excellent job, a superior job, or an acceptable job, or a halfway job. I don't know. But it says here that the saints, human beings, to be born of God and changed into the very similitude and the Spirit of God, are going to judge angels. And if that's true, to judge a powerful, awesome spirit being, how much more earthly things, things that pertain to this life, if you then have judgments of things pertaining to this life, do you, and this should be the way it reads, if you have a modern English translation, you can research it if you doubt my word, don't set them that are least, but do you set those who are the least in 
in the church, least esteemed, least qualified in the church to do that judging. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, no, not one, that shall be able to judge between his brethren? Can't the church straighten out its own problems? Does it have to go to the outside law, the unjust judge, the ones of whom Jesus said, Woe unto you lawyers, and let them fight over it and pull and tug? As it's been said time and time again, the only one that really wins in court are the lawyers. The people never win. The legal fees are astronomical, and the lawyers just drag it out as long as they can and take as much as they can. Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law one with another. Now, apply this to ourselves. Apply it to whatever comes along in your life. Why do you not rather take wrong? Remember the backdrop that I mentioned that here in which Jesus Christ of Nazareth urged the people of God, give to him that asked thee, go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, pray for him that despitefully uses you and persecutes you. What was the backdrop? It was Caesar's Rome. It was a land in which there were no founding documents of the First Amendment. There were no amendments to the Constitution that said, you're guaranteed the freedom of speech, the freedom of public assembly, the freedom to bear arms, the freedom of religion. You had none of those freedoms. You were a slave race. And in a slave context, a beleaguered, occupied nation with the harsh brutality of the conscription into Roman galleys, public lashings, public stonings, and death administered instantly. Crucifixion is the cruelest form of death administered by the Romans, and with the Roman courts at work, Jesus came among those people and preached Christianity, not to Americans who are spoiled, rotten with their freedoms and taken, take them for granted, but among Jews in ancient Israel who virtually had no freedoms. And he said, Rejoice when you are wrongfully treated. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. The Apostle Paul said that he judged in that church. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. He wrote this letter. He said, Put away that evil one from among yourselves. And then he began to show how that person had repented. Chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Corinthians, I determined this with myself, that I would not come to you again in heaviness. I didn't want to be sad and burdened when I got there. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad but the same that I made sorry? And I wrote this same unto you, lest when I came I should have sorrow from them of whom I really ought to rejoice. Having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of everybody. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart. I hated to do it, brethren. I didn't want to write that way. I wrote to you with many tears, saying I broke down in composing that letter. I didn't want to do it. Not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. And if any has caused grief, it isn't that he's grieved me, but in part. He's trying to show he didn't sin against me. It hurt me, yeah, but it wasn't against me, that I may not overcharge all of you. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, the whole congregation, so that contrarywise you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Is it possible for a person who has sinned and sinned grievously 
and who has bitterly and deeply repented over perhaps a protracted period of time, to have to bear that guilt until he is swallowed up with overmuch sorrow, so says the Bible. Wherefore I beseech you that you would confirm your love toward him, for to this end did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it for your sakes, I did it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Interesting the way that text follows hard on the heels of urging the people in God's congregation to forgive one another. And when you don't, Satan gets in and loots of bitterness and judging. Now that's the kind of judging that is condemnation. Putting people down, saying, he did this, she did that, that's horrible, that's atrocious. Oh, do you know what they did? And that's when Satan gets an advantage of you. There's a scripture that says, those are taken easily at his will. Those who are not prepared, not equipped with the armor of God, Satan the devil says, ho-hum, him, oh, he's an easy mark. Uh, I, I got some tough ones over here that I work on real heavy, but this person, oh, I just, uh, I just go over and torment him just for the fun of it. He says, lest he get an advantage of us because we're not ignorant of his devices. So it says, resist the devil and he will flee from us. And in the name of Jesus Christ, the demonic spirits and Satan are afraid of Jesus in you. You, because of Christ in you, have more power than they do. Christ has. You don't. But Christ in you certainly does. So this is the way the Apostle Paul administered judgment, a beautiful way. Yes, it might have seemed harsh, but look what he did. He had a terrible sin brought to him by a letter from a faraway church. He very carefully avoided mentioning the man's name. He didn't get up before the people and tongue-lash this man and sort through his entrails and expose and all of it and say, you better watch out for your children, you better watch out for your wives, this man is a menace, and so on. No, none of that. But he said, you need to put that man away. And you can't tolerate this sin. And he said, purge out the old leaven. And he really rebuked the whole congregation because they were collectively guilty. The climate in the Corinthian church allowed that kind of sin to exist. He had a strong word to say to everybody. Now, some of them, or most of them, or maybe all of them, we hope, repented. And certainly that man did. Thankfully, Paul never even mentioned his name. And then he urged the people, forgive him and let him back and love him and don't let him be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. That was the way justice and mercy and forgiveness was administered in God's church by the Apostle Paul. In turning to Revelation, the 20th chapter, we all know the basic plan of God, I would think. And for those of you that are very new, let me just go over it very briefly in about 30 seconds. There are three basic groups you're dealing with of humanity. Those who are in Christ, who have been or who are now, the saints. When Jesus Christ comes, there are many scriptures that absolutely prove that the saints are going to be resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 52, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 to the end, and so many other scriptures that are going to rise to meet him in the air, and they're going to come down, Zechariah 14, 4, and his feet shall stand in that day on the Mount of Olives, and all of the saints are going to be gathered by the angels, it says, and come down together and stand on the Mount of Olives in the beginning of the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. All right, that includes every human being whom 
who has ever been righteous before God. It even includes, and I don't understand how God is going to both beget and cause to be born instantly, because they were not begotten of the Father. Yet I just believe my Bible, which says you will see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. Men who had many wives, men who lied, men who had hardness of heart in certain directions, but they were great men, they were patriarchs, they are the fathers of Israel, and God is willing to forgive and to overlook some of those things, and they're going to be in God's kingdom, and they're going to stand with Christ on the Mount of Olives. Now, there's another vast category. Right outside this door, and all around this vast earth, all those who have gone before, and what happens to them when they die, not knowing not having understood. And you can mention China. Every sixth, or is it almost every fourth, I think now, human being is Chinese. The Indians of Asia and all the Africans and so many of the other people, literally almost the entirety of the four and one-half billion human beings that are now alive, the perhaps four billion plus that live from the time of Adam until the flood, all the billions that have gone from the time of the flood until today. What happens to them? We read in, in uh, Revelation 20, in verse 4, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Now, this is a dual meaning. It doesn't just mean they were given the responsibility to judge. It doesn't just mean somebody came up and handed them a scepter. I believe it also means what God gave Solomon, that wisdom and discretion and mercy and love and thorough understanding is also given to them. Not only the office of a judge, but the capacity to judge and to judge in mercy. How do you want to be judged? Just sit and think. The way I've been kind of letting my hair down and talking to you about a mistake I made. And think about some of your mistakes. And how you're going to reason with God. If you haven't already, and you should have on your knees and reasoned with God and said, Father, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way, I know I was out of line. How do you want God to respond to you? And you come up with the most beautifully stylized way that you would like to have Christ smile at you and say, well, I understand. And since you repented, and I will even give you more of my grace and more of my mercy and more of my spirit to help you repent more and more because we humanly are not able to repent as deeply as we should, I will forgive you. Now, how would you like just a perfect stylized way to hear this response from God your Father and from Jesus Christ your Lord when he looks you in the eye and says, your sins are forgiven? Now, you take that stylized way and you lock that into your head and you say, that is exactly the way I am going to judge my fellow man because that's the way I want to be judged. And you've got the perfect formula. How much mercy do you want? Give that much. How much forgiveness do you want? Give that much. How much do you want God to understand your deepest, innermost motives, the, the, the things that drove you, the why you did what you did? So understand that in your fellow man, why he did what he did, the motive he had, the depth of his feeling and of his heart, what made him do what he did and understand it. Judgment was given unto them, and I saw the lives, the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus. Now here were people who for the sake of our Savior, for the sake of believing in God's Sabbath, in the name of Jesus Christ, the same things you believe in, the same doctrines, the same truths, had to put their head on the block. Now what does God require of you? What does he require of me? 
Mr. Burke was asking, is this bondage? What we're doing here together, this marvelous, enjoyable, wonderful time in one of the most glittering jewels of God's creation on the whole earth, believe me, I've seen much of it, I know. There's nothing in the Asian continent, nothing in Africa, nothing in Australia, nothing else in North America or Canada, unless it's Lake Louise and Banff, that even looks like this area here. And we rejoice together in this jewel in God's crown of this beautiful earth that he has made and lets us enjoy. And some people think this is bondage. Oh, no way. We haven't resisted unto blood. And does God require of some of us someday to give our lives in some way or the other? Maybe. I don't know. It would be a great honor to be selected as a martyr for Jesus Christ. You know how I know? Because that's the bottom line. Because that is the final proof. You've got it made. Verse 5. The rest of the dead, all these vast billions I've talked about, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now that's parenthetical. This is the first resurrection is referring back to chapter 20 and verse 4 of the first resurrection of the dead in Christ. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection on such the second death has no power. That means that the second death still has power on those that are in the second resurrection. They can still lose out. They've lived a human life. They died. They're going to be resurrected. They can die again. The second death still has power over them. They've got to shed that power by having the Holy Spirit of God beget them, or they can die again in this time for all eternity. Now, it leaves a third category, but notice in verse 11, I saw a great white throne, and this is that final culmination of God's plan. I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God. And the Biblos, books, plural, were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. Is that symbolic or literal? I don't know. And the dead were judged. Now, judgment is not a sentencing. And the book of Isaiah, the 65th chapter, shows that the sinner being a hundred years shall be accursed, and the child a hundred years and it talks about a hundred years. Why? I think that is insight that God is going to give a 100-year lifespan. And we've thought that for decades in God's church. After the millennium, at the end of that period of time, there is going to come a final resurrection, and that is a resurrection to death. And this is something people have not understood. Follow me quickly. It is given to all men to die once. That is not the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is the absence of life for all eternity. You can live a righteous life and keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, and when your life winds down, you will die of natural causes of old age. That wasn't the penalty for sin. You're going to die anyway. So when Christ resurrects the dead in Christ, that's one category. All the rest of the dead live not again, and they're resurrected to what? Not to condemnation, to judgment. There's a great difference between judgment and sentencing. Judgment is a discerning. Judgment must begin today at the house of God. We're judged daily. They will be judged daily out of books, the same books that judge us, the Word of God, the Bible. But after that, it says, verse 14, death and hell, Greek, Hades, meaning the grave. It says death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And that's where Luke 16 and the parable of Lazarus and the rich man come in, of this person who is an incorrigibly wicked person who is resurrected and sees a wall of flame approaching, 
and is going to be incinerated in that flame. I want to conclude by turning to Psalm 51. How are you going to judge when you're given a scepter, a bench, if that's the way it's to be, and if you're given people standing there quaking in fear, standing before you, whose lives are all laid out bare, and you're the person that has to make that decision. Here's the way David wanted to be judged. Here's what he asked God. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against thee. People don't agree with that. They think it's against them. Oh, no. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you shall make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast or a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me, from this position of the depths of sin, said David, the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit, then will I teach transgressors thy ways. What? A man who had to grovel before God to say, Wash me clean, forgive my sins, can stand up and teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For you desire not sacrifice, or I'd give you some, I'd, I'd give it. You delight not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shall you be pleased with the sacrifice of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. One of the most beautiful psalms in all of the Bible. That's the way David wanted to be judged. That's the way God judged him. A man who lied, a man who perpetrated murder, a man who committed adultery, a man who engendered an illegitimate child, a man who killed hundreds upon hundreds of terrified people. And what was David? A man of joy, a man of song, a man of dance, of laughter, of mercy, of forgiveness, a man of great love, and a man after God's own heart. How did God judge David? How do you want God to judge you? The same way. Please be sure that you judge righteous judgment.